Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, it is 9.30, and we've got lots of good stuff to cover, so we're going to get started. We're going to be talking about the four, chapter 4 in the Westminster Confession today, entitled, Of Creation. So we're going to start with the word of Scripture, but instead of reading it myself, I'm going to let someone else read it. So, uh, Mission Control, if you'd play the transmission. <laughs> Oh, here we go. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. All of you on the good earth. Let's pray. Lord God, we do indeed live on good earth, as twisted and distorted and corrupted as it is by sin and as surrounded as we are by all the evidences of the fall. uh, It is still good. It is still beautiful. And it is a jewel set in the midst of the the magnificent setting of the universe. The universe that you brought about uh, through the power of your word. Open your word to us now today. Send your spirit to bring it life in our hearts. Teach us about the living word, uh, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Those of you who walked in late wondered what on earth we were listening to. That'll teach you to show up late in my Sunday school class. Uh, that, was, that was a recording from the three astronauts aboard Apollo 8 uh, and on Christmas Eve 1968. For those of you who study world history, 1968 was a miserable year on Earth for many, many reasons, which we cannot go into now. Uh, but in the midst of it, NASA pulled off a Hail Mary mission, and they took, they took uh, the Apollo 8 
crew, who were originally scheduled to go do a low Earth, uh, to, to simply travel to low Earth orbit, like Apollo 7. And instead, they decided to stick these three men on top of their brand new shiny Saturn V rocket and, and, throw, and launch them all the way to the moon. So what you heard was uh, the astronauts who had just recently circumnavigated the moon for the first time in human history, giving an address back to, uh, back to Earth, back to Mission Control, and then broadcast throughout the rest of the world uh, their Christmas Eve mes message. Mission Commander Frank Borman, uh, he knew this was going to be a historic moment. And so rather than try to come up with a cute little one-liner like a, a certain astronaut would do a couple missions later, he decided he and his crewmates would read the creation account from Genesis chapter 1. So what we played there was just a brief clip. Um, you could hear at the beginning, you could hear um, Lunar Module Pilot Bill Anders' squeaky little voice, and then you, had, uh, then you had Command Module Pilot Jim Lovell's deep, rich baritone. He was the quintessential astronaut. And then finally, Frank Borman's no-nonsense Air Force pilot, engineer's monotone uh, closing out and giving that final, that final uh, farewell on that message. Wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, God bless, and a recognition of the good earth uh, that we all live on. Which is, I can't think of a better introduction to chapter four of the Westminster Confession. It was, it's a scene in history that the Westminster divines could never have imagined when they penned these few powerful words that we're gonna look at today. Before I jump into, um, before I jump into chapter four though, I wanna make sure that we we recognize just the care, meticulous care that was taken when the confession was written. You could honestly spend a fruitful afternoon just meditating upon the titles, uh, the chapter titles for, for the confession. Notice the order in which we've come to get here to chapter four. We started with scripture. We started with revelation, which is interesting, because we didn't get, till God, we didn't get to God and the Trinity until chapter two, which, which on first glance feels a little backwards. It is all about God. Why wouldn't we start with him? And of course, the, the Westminster divines knew, as Calvin did in, when he wrote his Institutes, that before we can know God fully and truly, we must know his revelation first, which is why we had to talk about, which is why scripture must be discussed first. Then comes God. Then, God, come God, then comes God's eternal decree to the extent that he wishes us to know it. And then finally, Finally, we get down to the stuff, the stuff that is us and the world that we live in, in chapter 4. So pay attention to the or not only what is said, but the order in which it's said as we go through this course. I was also reminded this morning as I looked over this lesson one last time, just how helpful, um, helpful the scripture texts are. Um, as Andrew's already mentioned, uh, the divines did not want to put these in here. They resented, uh, they resented being forced to proof text because they didn't want to make it feel like they didn't want to make it feel like their doctrine was simply, you know, was simply based on this verse and that verse and this little thing over here. They had, they had purposely written this, uh, drawing on the, full, on the full study of Christian history. They, saw the, they, were trying to, they were trying to clarify themes that ran all throughout Scripture. Parliament forced them to do it, and that gave us a, a tremendous resource because it turned the confession from... Not, the confession is more than just a statement of faith. It acts as a very helpful and simple commentary upon the scripture. So if you have, if you start to get, if someone questions you about predestination, if you want to clarify your own thoughts on the atonement or the civil magistrate or marriage uh, or the sacraments, then you can simply turn to the confession, look over their words, and then look at what scriptures that they reference, and then take your reading even further there. 
Don't ever stay with just the brief little excerpts given your copy of the confession. Go read the whole chapter. Go read the whole paragraph. Go read the full context of what the divines, what the divines were uh, pulled from. And you will learn a tremendous amount from our forebears in the faith. Chapter 4 of the confession, unlike some of the others that we'll look at, is very, very short. So let's start by just reading it here together. It pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge righteousness and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. This is one of those brief, succinct, jam-packed sections of the confession that we could not write today. There are, there are, there are brief little clauses in here that, uh, that are sources of huge controversy in the world we live in. We're going to touch on a few of those here in a minute. Uh, in some ways, it's almost disappointing. We we, I, some, some part of me would like a little more detail on some of these issues that we fight over today. On the other hand, there is an elegant beauty in just how simple, simple this is and how direct it's laid out for us. Um, the, the biggest challenge with trying to teach on the confession is after you finish reading it, you just want to stop and say, this concludes my Sunday school lesson for today. You now have 40 minutes to meditate upon these words, and we'll come back to worship here after you're finished. Uh, instead, no, that wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't be earning my high paycheck. I have to uh, say, try to follow, that, follow up that act. You've heard from Apollo 8, you've heard from Westminster Divines. It really doesn't get much better on a Sunday morning Sunday school lesson. What's so amazing about this is they're, they're briefly summarizing the creation of something so incomprehensibly vast. The universe is huge, as we all know, but, I, but none, of us, none of us can even comprehend the created world that we live in fully. To the best of human knowledge right now, the furthest galaxy in our universe is 13.7 billion light years away. And that's... 13, so it takes a minute just to break that down so we can understand it. A light year is a convenient unit of astronomical measurement, and it's simply the amount of distance that a, a light particle can travel in the course of a year, which is a lot. But, and we're talking about 13.7 billion of these things. And what we're looking at is not a star so far, so far away. We're looking at a whole galaxy, a galaxy filled with hundreds of millions of its own stars um, so far away that it's just a tiny pinprick of light that we can see, and that's all. However, in spite, of, uh, in spite of the light show that we see when we look up at the night sky, the universe is predominantly empty. There's only, uh, take, any given, take any given cubic meter, cubic yard of the universe, and you'll find only a few molecules floating around it, two, literally two, three, four, and that's it. It's almost pure empty vacuum, even in the denser regions of like uh, the nebula that we see pictures of. When you actually look close, there's hardly anything there. It's only on a grand scale where you can begin to see 
what's you know uh, what fills it up. So of course, so what if you the um, all of the majority of the mass and the matter in the universe is uh, is encased in stars or their remnants, and of that of the mat actual material, if you take all the stuff of the universe and you were put it in a massive pile, it wouldn't be as nearly as big as you th as you would think, considering how much space it takes up. But you would also find it's almost all the same thing. It's 98% hydrogen. If you look at an element, if you look at a table of the elements, the very first element, one proton, one. Steal all my thunder there. One proton, one electron going around it, the simplest atomic structure there. That's what 98% of the universe is made of. That's what, star, that's what our star is burning right now. Uh, releasing the energy of, of you know, hundreds of nuclear weapons every second, just burning hydrogen under the weight of its own gravity. The, ro the remaining roughly 2% is helium, the second element on the table, and the less than 1% left in the universe is everything else, including, including all the carbon that makes up our bodies, that chair, the roof, the trees around us, all that is a minuscule portion of everything that, of all the stuff that's actually in the universe. It's also interesting, so that's the big scale. The big scale is pretty much empty. If you look at the, t if you look, let's go small. If you look at the, the, if you go down to the very foundational levels, to the atoms that make up all of us, they're mostly empty too. There's hardly anything in them. You've got, a, you've got this flurrying cloud of electrons surrounding the nucleus of the atom made up of a bunch of protons. Those protons don't even want to be next to each other. They're electrically opposed to one another. They should fly apart. By, you know, um, it, it, uh, it was a conundrum for scientists for years. Why does, why did, as soon as we were able to probe the structure of the atom, we began to wonder, why are we all still here? Why hasn't everything, why hasn't every particle in our body just simply flown apart from its own repulsive forces? It's interesting, the mass of the atom, is, it's very, the mass, the amount of stuff in the atom, most of it's not the actual particles themselves. Most of it's the incredible energy holding each of those things together. We call it the strong nuclear force. It's one of the four fundamental forces in the universe. We have no idea how it works. But it's so powerful, it holds protons together next to each other uh, and contributes, and it's so energetic that its energy flux provides the majority of the mass that makes up us. So what we think of as solid matter is actually this quivering, unstable bundle of energy that holds us up. Even, what we, you know, even if I slap my hand on this podium, you know, we think of my hand is solid, we think the table is solid, of course I'm not gonna pass through. Well, it took a, while, a long time before we figured out why matter doesn't just flow right through, through things. Why I don't just put my hand right through this table. I mean, we'd have to go into quantum mechanics to, to fully explain why that's possible, which we do not have time for this morning. Yeah, I know, I know. But here's the point, so here's the point. The universe and us in it, we're pretty, pretty much nothing. We're pretty much just empty space. On the big scale, on the little scale, wherever you look, it's just, it's hard, there's hardly anything. There's an elegant, streamlined simplicity to everything about the world uh, that we live in. In 1990, the Voyager, the Voyager 1 probe was 3.7 billion miles out from, out from Earth. So it was right on the edge of the solar system. And at that point, the, the mission control back in Houston flipped the satellite around, pointed it at, to give it one last look at home, and it took a picture. And that picture was very famous and came to be called the pale blue dot. If you, were to, you can Google it and find it very easily. 
uh, don't do it now. You're paying attention to me. Um, if you, it's called the pale blue dot. It's a very famous photo for many reasons. There's a there's a lens flare from the sun from the sun, which is just out of frame that cuts across diagonally on the right hand side of the photo. And right in the middle of that ray of light is a tiny blue speck. It was so small it didn't even make up an a full pixel on the photograph. And that little blue dot is Earth from the vantage point of the Voyager 1 probe when it took the, took the photo. I'm going to be dating myself with some of my references, but I promise to keep this more, make this more contemporary as we go on. Uh, the late astronomer Carl Sagan, he very famously commented on this photo. He said, because of the reflection of sunlight, Earth seems to be sitting in a beam of light as if there were some special significance to this small world. But it's just an accident of geometry and optics. Our posturings, our, self, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. As Christians, it's very easy to just dismiss that out of hand. But there is some weight that we, should, that we should consider in Sagan's words before we move on to criticism. We are, we should be humbled. Our self-importance should be humbled as we consider, even as we just consider how vast the universe is. But we shouldn't stop there. Because true humility comes not from just considering the vastness of the universe, that's a good place to start, but we should consider the creator who holds all of that in the palm of his hand. Actually, he doesn't even have a hand. As a human construct, we have to create just to try to wrap our heads around the incomprehensible creator who we are blessed to know because he was, we are blessed that he made himself known to us. As you look over the confession, hopefully you'll be inspired to look deeper into this after I'm done today. But one of the things I love is that it starts, it doesn't just say God created the universe. It says God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this is a great place to start looking at those scripture references that you have in front of you. As it pulls from scripture, as it pulls references from all over the Bible showing Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were all involved in the creation. Because what does it say right there in the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. So there's, there's a reference to God the Father and the Holy Spirit right from the outset. And then John chapter 1 famously opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And goes on to explain that this Word, uh, helped, this word was involved in the creation of the world. And this Word was made manifest among us, and this Word was Christ. I think it's also important to note, it says that he, um, it said it was God created the world for the manifestation of his glory. You will get some very sentimental teaching on creation from many sources that God was bored, God was lonely, God needed someone, and therefore he created the world and created man to be his friend. Isn't that so sweet? Doesn't that make us feel special? I mean, this is the kind of drivel. Uh, this is the kind of drivel that I think God gave us Carl Sagan to be a corrective against. We, God, did not need any of us here. As a matter of fact, we have proven ourselves to be very troublesome, handy, very troublesome handiwork since He made us. He was perfectly content 
within the community, the eternal, everlasting community of the Trinity. And this is, we could spend, we could spend weeks trying to fathom this, trying to meditate upon this, but it is so crucial to understand. We are completely dependent upon our God. He, is the, he needs nothing from us. And yet somehow, he is glorified and pleased by having us here. Uh, and this, this is a glorious thing to consider. Um, because this means, because if we do anything less, then God becomes a little bit less. If God in some way needed his creation, then he ceases to be God. Because, he, because now he has, lo- because need implies authority. And as soon as you need someone else, you give them authority over you. But the authority goes all the other way for us. I'm going to skip over the comment about visible or invisible in the interest of time. We're going to settle on that in the space of six days. And all very good. Um, I, was, I was really trying to talk about lots of things today, but we're probably going to camp out here on this for the rest of it. Because this is, um, it's, it, because this is like the original... This is, like the, uh, this is like the original stumbling stone of the Reformed Church in the 20th and the 21st century. This is where all the compromise that, that's being fought over on homosexuality and women's ordination and, um, you know, and the nature of God and the historical Adam, it all began over this debate over what did the, did the Westminster Divines really mean six days? Six, just six. Controversy over the length of creation is nothing new. Obviously, it was, you know, obviously it received new impetus with Darwin's origin of the species and with later investigation into the size, size of the universe into modern dating techniques. And so there has always, so Christians have always felt this pull, this tug about where, how do we take this passage? And there's many theories, there's been many theories that try to get around the traditional, what I will call for the moment, the traditional and literal interpretation of Genesis, where God, God took six literal 24-hour periods of time to create everything in the universe around us, both visible and invisible. Been, there's been the gap theory, which said that God did the work of creation in 24 hours, and then he let thousands to millions of years go by to kind of let all of that, what he did on that first day, on that day to kind of settle in, grow, expand, evolve, and then the next day came, and then another gap period. And we don't know how long those gaps are, but we, you know, we can see them in, uh, you know, we think that's where all the massive amounts of time we seem to see in the world around us came from. There's also been the day-age theory, where each day is not, where each day is not a literal 24-hour period of time, uh, but is instead a literary construct uh, representing large eons of progressive creation. And then there finally, and I think this is probably, and I think, I think both of those theories, both those theories still have their adherence today. Both of those are still, both of those are, interesting, you know, permitted exceptions to the Westminster Confession in the PCA and in many other Reformed denominations. Um, they, are, they are viewed as within the pale of orthodoxy today. I think the most, com- but I think our most common is, on- is really the most honest or at least, uh, at, least, uh, at least wants to be viewed as such. And that would be the theistic evolutionary perspective. When I was growing up <clears throat> and watching Bill Nye on, on PBS late at night, um, the, the- theistic evolutionists, their spokesman was a man named Hugh Ross. 
Dr. Ross still writes today. He's still very, very, very influential. Has anyone here read, heard of Hugh Ross? Read him? Not really. Is he a Christian? That's a great question. Yes, he does, he does claim to be a Christian. He claims to, and like most theistic evolutionists, he wants you to know how highly he regards God's word and scientific inquiry. However, probably the more, um, probably the more prominent proponents of the, um, theistic evolution that, we're gonna, that we'll look at later today is an organization called BioLogos. Uh, they have far more influence. Uh, they have, they've taken, they've built a lot of Dr. Ross's work and expanded it much, much more broadly. I also want to give, uh, we also want to give a nod to the intelligent design theorists. These are kind of, um, these, these are a group who are, they're, uh, they tend towards theistic evolutionary perspective, but they, they, they skew, they also see from, uh, they also look at the creationist perspective and see some strengths there as well. And they try to go right down the middle and say, well, we don't really know how it works, but it sure looks like the world was made by someone, doesn't it? That's really kind of what their philosophy boils down to. And I'm going to reference some of their ideas later on because they have some, they have some helpful observations. But what are, what are we to make? of this, uh, what are we to make of this description, space of six days? You know, we could go into, we could go into the Hebrew word yom, which is used, which is translated day in most of our translations, and we could go into the discussion about how it's used to represent different periods of time than literal days in other parts of scripture, and that would be true. We could debate, uh, we could debate the chronological presentation. Um, but we don't have time for that. And honestly, the Bible records the creation of the world as history. And it treats it, and Jesus and the apostles and the rest, and Moses and the writers of the Pentateuch, they all treat it as history throughout the rest. So we are left in a very, so if we're trying to, if we're trying to split our worldview between two schools of thought, we're going to find it very, very uncomfortable, as many, many have. Because this, the creation account we're given is presented as a historical account. Condensed, simplified, direct, certainly, by no means exhaustive. Uh, we'd love to see more, de we'd love to get more detail about how God did this. But he decided this was enough. And I think the, I think the language of the Westminster Confession mirrors that simplicity again. We are asked to take God at his word in what is written here. So in, now there's a lot more I could say about that and, you know, has progressed to the ramifications of that, which uh, I'd love to talk. If you have questions, I hope maybe we can discuss them at the end or talk to you afterwards. But I think the more, but the thing I really want us to see right now is everything, everything in the Bible, as in everything in the world, is built on what happens in Genesis. I think this, and this is one of the reasons why this is such a contested portion of Scripture, because everything comes from this. I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on, on, the, on another controversy as I should, but it, he mentions that after he made all the other creatures, God created man. And he created man male and female. And it's really depressing to have to say that that's a controversial statement in this day and age. But my elected representatives have been, have been working for the past month to pass legislation to save women's sports. Uh, the, you, the South Carolina House of Representatives just passed a bill uh, that would prevent transgender youth from competing in women's athletics and allowing men to prove that they're better women than women are. Um, 
And that's, that's what our electorate, and that's what they have to spend their time on right now. Um, it's, uh, once again, the, the writers of this could never have imagined, uh, never imagined the controversy with, that would flow out of what they probably consider very, very simple statements. And I, don't, I love the language of Genesis on this. We're always, seeing, we're always seeing a singularity and a plurality, and the two are just blending. Do you notice that? The two are just blending in and out of each other all through the passage of Genesis. Let's, uh, before we move back to six days, let's consider that for just a minute. If you have your Bibles, it's worth looking at Genesis chapter 2. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 1, back up to verse 26. Mm, verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Singular God, one God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them, see this, man, singular, them, plural, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, semicolon, male and female, he created them. Now, that's some weird pronoun usage right there, isn't it? And yet it's completely accurate. Look how much we've learned about God, and look how, much, look how much theology and anthropology we've learned in just a few words here in Genesis. We've learned about a, a, single, a single God who exists in three persons, who is uni both unified and diverse, all in himself. And we've learned, about, we've learned about one creature, man, who exists in two distinct, who exists in two distinct sexes at the same time. Don't you see, already we've, learned, even before, already we've learned something about what God has said in his image because mankind is both one and two at the same time. And both of those things are true. We are both one in the image and dignity, uh, in the dignity that comes to being the image bearers of God and rulers over his creation. At the same time, we are, two, we are distinct within that as well. And this, this, this interplay between unity and diversity between unity, um, between the one and the many, is a theme that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. We see the Trinity. We see biblical sexuality. We've, uh, we learn about, in chapter 3, we'll learn about the fall and depravity, which I'm going to leave because that's, that's a future chapter. Uh, we learn about marriage. We learn about the Sabbath. We learn about work. We learn about dominion. We learn about cultivation and conservation, all within just the first few chapters of the Bible. Now, of all those subjects... Are any of those taken for granted today? None of them. Every one of those is a contentious point. And every one of those is built upon what God laid down in his creation order. I'm going to read to you from Biologos, the, um, the, the theistic evolutionary think, think tank that I mentioned earlier. This is their very helpful What We Believe section on their website. Uh, and this is current. I'm looking at this live right now. Biologos invites the church 
and the world to see the harmony between science and biblical faith. The order there is significant. As we present an evolutionary understanding of God's creation. We believe the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God. By the Holy Spirit, it is the living and active, that's in quotation marks for some reason, means through which God speaks to the church today, bearing witness to God's Son, Jesus, as a divine logos or word of God. We believe that God also reveals himself in and through the natural world he created, which displays his glory, eternal power, and divine nature, properly interpreted. Scripture and nature are complementary and faithful witnesses to their common author. We believe that all people have sinned against God and are in need of salvation. We believe in the historical incarnation of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man. We believe in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which we are saved and reconciled to God. We believe that God is directly involved in the lives of people today through acts of redemption, personal transformation, and answers to prayer. We believe that God typically sustains the world using faithful, consistent processes that humans describe as natural laws. Yet we also affirm that God works outside of natural law in supernatural events, including the miracles described in Scripture. In both natural and supernatural ways, God continues to be directly involved in creation and human history. So I'm through the first six points of their statement of faith, and so far, it's not bad. We'd find a lot we could agree with here. Um, there's, you know, there's a few things that seem a little mushy, but so far it's solid. I'm going to skip down to number nine, though. We believe that the diversity and interrelation of all life on earth are best explained by the God-ordained process of evolution and common descent. Thus, evolution is not in opposition to God, but a means by which God providentially achieves his purposes. Therefore, we reject ideologies that claim that evolution is a purposeless process or that evolution replaces God. We believe, listen to this. We believe that God creates humans in biological continuity with all life on earth but also as spiritual beings. God established a unique relationship God established a unique relationship with humanity by endow, endowing us with his image and calling us to an elevated position within the created order. Did you all catch the little change in language there from the scriptural one? Were we created in God's image? No, we were endowed with God's image. Theistic evolutionists say, state that they don't believe, they believe it's debatable whether there was actually a historical man and woman named Adam and Eve. What they believe instead is that, is that humans evolved from common ancestry with apes and monkeys and other primates. And at a certain point, God stepped into history and said, okay, I want these guys. I want them to be, I want them to be the top of the pile in the evolutionary, in the evolutionary heap. Uh, and so he came and he breathed his spirit into this proto-man, um, you know, dragging his knuckles around on earth. And that was the creation of, and that was the creation in their weasley use of the word um, of Adam, if he even existed. We believe that conversations among Christians about controversial issues of science and faith can and must be conducted with humility, grace, honesty, and compassion as a visible sign of the Spirit's presence in Christ's body to the church. In other words, we need to be winsome in our discourse on these things, which is what, which is what people who are questioning truth always want to be quick to stress. We need to be nice about this, guys. Come on. Biologos includes among its, uh, among its advisors and its contributors prominent theologian and Christian leaders such as N.T. Wright and Timothy J. Keller, 
and many other, and Peter Enns, and some other names that you might recognize. It's very, very influential. But at this point, uh, at, this, at this point, the reconcilist in me wants to say, well, you know what, maybe they're not that far off. I mean, what's the point? So they're messing around, you know. So, so it's not quite as precise as we rigid, crunchy Presbyterians would like. But, you know, they love Jesus. They seem to love Jesus in this thing. Um, so maybe we've got common cause on this. Just, you know, how bad is this? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 5. Looking at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed, for there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, one and many again, by the way, um, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of, one, of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Do you all notice a word that showed up a lot in this? One. That's, that's, one, yeah, that's one, one thing that did show up. Uh, what else? What other word was prominent? Death. And what was the cause of death? Sin caused death. So if, we, if, our, if, our, if our ancestors who were unendowed with God's image, if they evolved... Uh, if they macro-evolved over a long period of time from an earlier primate, what, what had to happen to a lot of them? Death. A lot of, evolution uh, requires a lot of death. Life forms are born. They, have, they, they take on certain genetic traits. They learn, adapt, or mutate new ones. They die, they, but before they do, they pass those on to the next generation over and over and over again. Um, but the problem is, what does the scripture say is the origin of death? It is sin, and whose sin? Adam's. I mean, you see, you see the, you see the simplicity. This is, this is not one of the more complicated. This is an earth-shattering and profoundly important doctrine of scripture, but it's not one of the most complicated things the, script, the Bible teaches by any means. This is basic covenant theology laid out for us. Because Adam was a type of Christ who would come, and Adam represented all his posterity, and so the consequences of his actions were ours. And every day we prove we are his children as we continue to sin and act like the death-loving, the death-loving fanatics that we are. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 with me as well. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. 
But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Uh, skipping down to verse 45, I hate to be skipping around so much, but uh, time presses. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So debates over Adam and the historicity of his existence are not just about Adam. They're also about, I heard it very quietly, this is Christ, thank you. This is worth yelling out there. So when we debate Genesis, we are debating the gospel. Unless you doubt it, let me read you one other. Uh, let me read you a blog post from BioLogos. This is from um, this is one of their contributors, Joseph Banker, written back in 2015. <sighs> There's a lot here. I'm going to try to make this brief. Let me read you his introduction, because I think it's important. Bankard wrote, writes, Growing up in a Christian home, I never questioned the validity of the substitutionary atonement. I was raised to believe that humans were sinful and God was holy. Because of sin, God could not be in a, in a right relationship with creation. As a solution, Jesus played the role of mediator between humanity and God. Jesus served as a perfect sacrifice for human sin. His blood covers our iniquities, and because of his death, humans can be forgiven. As a young adult, this view made sense to me. I knew I was a sinner in need of forgiveness. It seemed reasonable that God would use Jesus as sacrifice to atone for human sin. But over time, I began to question the logical and moral merits of such a view. I can still remember the first time I began to question the interpretation of the cross. I was in a Good Friday service surrounded by Christians celebrating the crucifixion of Jesus. Far from the solemn tone of a Catholic Mass or a Tenenbrough service, this worship experience was filled with upbeat music, raised hands, and prayers of thanksgiving. At this moment, I began to ask several questions. Was Jesus' humiliation and torture really something to celebrate? Shouldn't we be mourning the death of Jesus instead? Wasn't the crucifixion of Jesus an example of selfishness and sin by those responsible for his death? If Jesus' execution was an example of sin, then how could God will it? Those que these questions still haunt me. They caused me to reevaluate the meaning and significance of the cross and of Christian atonement. They've led me to study and discuss these issues with Christians I trust and respect. And what follows, I will attempt to outline some of my thoughts on Christian atonement. I don't claim to have all the answers. <laughs> but he, has, he, he answers plenty of things. In his conclusion, he writes... And he lays out a basically what we would call an incarnational view of the atonement, that, that the cross was not necessary, that there was no atonement made for our sins by Jesus. That was just a, that was an accident, if you will. God, never, God knew it was going to happen, but he never intended it or willed it. Instead, he lays out that God, that Jesus came to be an example, that came to be one of us, to be, be part of us. That was what was sufficient for salvation. It's a very, very old heresy in the church, and it's dressed up in new clothes for the 21st century in this. In writing of this view of incarnational redemption, uh, Bankard writes, this view of the atonement is important for several reasons. First, it doesn't require, though would be compatible with, the historical Adam and Eve. 
and the traditional view of original sin. The substitutionary view argues that Jesus' death redeems the sin committed by Adam and Eve in the garden. To adopt this view, one must read Genesis 1-3 more literally. At times, this kind of biblical hermeneutic may run counter to evolutionary theory. The view sketched above does not require historical Adam and Eve or a traditional concept of original sin, making it more compatible with evolution. Additionally, my view of atonement argues that Christ's death was not part of God's plan. This helps preserve God's power, God can forgive in many ways and he doesn't require blood, and God's goodness, God doesn't will the cross. Now, if that's true, you all should just stand up and walk right out of this, right out of this, because we're all just, we're all just play acting, and this is all nonsense. He has, um, he has completely turned the gospel on its head, and he's done it in the name of defending the gospel against its detractors. But what he really, but what he and the other authors writing for Biologos really sound like is a certain, a certain, a third character in the garden, a fourth character in the garden after God, Adam and Eve, who said, has God really said? Has God really said he created in six days? Has God really said that Adam fell and sinned and corruption became of that? Has God really said that the cross is necessary? That seems so icky. Ugh. I think I know better. <laughs> I think the best, um, there's a lot more we could say. I think one of the beautiful things as you look at creation is not just its corruption or fall, but how much of the goodness still remains. Um, in their, writing their book, The Privileged Planet, astrophysicist Guillermo Gonzalez and philosopher uh, Jay Richards, they made the point that the conditions that are required for habitability, for life to exist on a planet, coincide with, uh, coincide with similar factors for exploration and discovery. The very thing that make Earth a great place to live, and it is, also make it a great place to learn about the rest of this universe. Our planet is set up in such, just such a way that we can not only, we can not only study the, the grass and the trees and the birds and the dogs around us, but we can look up in the heavens and we can, gra we can begin in, in, a fee, in, in a very small way to understand the universe around us. Our atmosphere is clear. Do you know how rare that is in the sol even just the solar system? Most atmospheres are cloudy and murky, and you can't snow, and hardly any light passes through them. And yet ours is transparent. It's transparent, and yet it protects us uh, from electromagnetic radiation, which would, uh, which would kill us or make us grow three eyeballs on our head. Um, so it's both, it's both a shield as well as a window into the universe around us. Our, our star, our star is a very average star, which sounds boring. It makes it sound like Sagan was right, and our world isn't special. Unless you're a scientist, and then you realize if we study our star, we've learned about 80% of the stars in the entire universe. And there it is, right there in front of us. We can learn about it. We have this amazing planet. And then every couple of years, the moon moves just in front of it. And although, our, and although our sun is 400 times larger than our moon, our moon is 400 times closer. So it covers it perfectly. And so we are, for just a moment, we're able to look up at the daytime sky, take the sun out, and study, and study what effect this, the gravity of the sun has on our view of the universe around us. And isn't that, there's so much we have to learn, there's so much we have to know, and we do it, we do it within the constraints God set. And that is, and he's, and he's channeled all of our thoughts into learning about everything he's done and learning about him before all.
So I think the best answer that we have in the limited time to us comes from God's answer to Job in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. <laughs> this is God talking. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? By the way, we learned the world's bases are sunk on basically nothing, basically empty space, empty, empty atoms, empty universe around us. That's, and yet it's the power of God that sustains us on that flimsy foundation. Who or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The Lord goes on and he answers none of Job's questions. Because it's not for Job, it's not for Job to question these things. It's for the Lord to make himself known to Job and to all of us. The Lord who was there at the beginning. And so that brings us back to those astronauts in Apollo 8. I love the humility that Commander Borman showed. When struck with the grandeur of a world that he couldn't comprehend, that he, dazzled by the bleak nothingness of the surface of the moon that he had just described, he decided he would say nothing at all and let the Lord have the last words uh, on that, that little chapter of man's history. And I think that humility is a great instruction to all of us as we consider God's creation and our place in it. And, that, and with that, let's pray and... Uh, I'll take any questions over lunch, after uh, over lunch. Lord God, let us consider ourselves rightly. Let us see ourselves in the light of not only our sin, but also, also our insignificance in the scope of all that you've accomplished. And yet, Lord, let us also consider that we have been lifted up in Christ, who did take on our form and become in the image of a servant. He came not only to live among us, but to die among us, to give his life that we may live. Lord God, we thank you for what you've taught us about that today and pray, help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.